Omicron, COVID strikes back. What we learnt from 2021, and will 2022 be any better? Plus, good news about cooperative energy. This is the final week on Wednesday for 2021. Hello and welcome to the week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison. I am currently cuddling Germanicus very tightly because it's quite cold where I am in Victoria. And I am joined from Sydney by the great, the awesome, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Online Conspiracy Cults, Van Batam. How are you, Van? My darling Ben, I am very looking forward to you joining me for a very purple Christmas in the Batam Davison household up here in Sydney. That's right. This time next week, we will be together. Oh, my God. And can I just say, we have a purple Christmas tree. We have a purple wreath on the door. We have purple lights. And it's really beginning to look like a look a lot like Christmas around here, if Christmas was, in fact, completely purple. A purple Christmas. Who'd have thought it, hey? Well, purple is my mother's favourite colour, and it's all about my mother this year, as well you know, as well you know. Indeed, and thank you to all of our listeners who have sent through their best wishes, their well wishes, to me, to Van, for Barb, for our families. It's been really, really very much appreciated. We know how much you care about us, and that, that's been really heartwarming. It really has. I am so grateful for the support I've received from so many people. So thanks. And, of course, Van, while I will be driving up to Sydney with Germanicus next week, tomorrow is an auspicious day in itself. And I won't be leaving Victoria, but it is abscondment day tomorrow, isn't it? It is abscondment day, December 16th. Uh, this marks the anniversary, in this case the second anniversary, although I do understand how time has no meaning for people anymore, of uh, when Scott Morrison uh, lied to the Australian people about his holiday plans and took off to lovely Waikiki, Hawaii. So a number of people who think that, you know, the electorate should be reminded that when we were fighting to protect our homes, businesses and lives from devastating apocalyptic fires, uh, people should be reminded that while we were going through that, Scott Morrison took a lovely holiday and, of course, capped it all off by coming back like five days later saying, I don't hold a hose, mate, when asked on a friendly radio station if he maybe could have done something at all that looked like solidarity with people who were terrified and losing everything. Well, he, my understanding, Van, is he gave that interview from Hawaii. He did that even before he had come back. Right. And, and that, and that he, he dialed in to that radio interview because it had become quite common knowledge here in Australia that he had gone to Hawaii. Of course, we've seen him try all sorts of tricks and, and, and shenanigans to try and get out of responsibility for that, the, the latest of which trying to suggest that he had told uh, the leader of the opposition that he was going on holiday with his family to Hawaii. He later had to clarify, because he had said this in Parliament, that actually, no, he hadn't told Anthony Albanese that he was going to Hawaii, just that he would be on leave. Uh, and, of course, Anthony Albanese made no assumption that uh, Scott Morrison holidays in Hawaii because up until two years ago we had no idea that he had ever been to Hawaii. 
now it's a, a holiday in the calendar, abscondment day. Well, so every, everybody who thinks it's important to remind everybody else that Scott Morrison did abscond when the people of this country needed his leadership the most, uh, will be wearing Hawaiian shirts Orchids, frangipanis and hibiscus behind the ear, maybe putting on a lay or a sarong, preparing a Mai Tai, maybe cracking out a ukulele for a few versions of pearly shells and uh, putting all of this imagery on Twitter under the hashtag abscondment day, December 16th, just the hashtag is just hashtag abscondment day uh, so everybody can sort of join in the chorus of disapproval and, uh, and remind everyone just the kind of person our Prime Minister is. Well, Van, I think it's going to be an interesting day tomorrow. Uh, I look forward to seeing people's pictures of Hawaiian shirts and maybe even some spam and rice uh, dishes, uh, which I understand uh, are popular in some parts of Hawaii as well. I wonder if, uh, if Morrison ate any spam on his holiday. Probably not. I doubt they had it in his resort. Let's get into some of the news because this is our final episode for 2021. Yes, we are taking a much-deserved break. I'm sure our listeners understand that Ben and I are physically and emotionally exhausted uh, after the year we've had. We are quite sure that many, 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 many other people are in a similar situation. So we are going to take a couple of weeks off and reunite with you all refreshed and revived in the new year. Yeah, absolutely. It's been such a huge, massive year for the week on Wednesday, quite aside from the huge, massive year for you, Van, and for me. You know, the the show has just gone from strength to strength, and really that's down to, to the people who listen to it. You know, I was looking at some numbers uh, just the other day, and our listenership just December this year compared to December last year, has had 800% growth, uh, which is massive, over a 1,000 downloads a day, every day, uh, for well over the last three months. So really huge congratulations to everybody who's making the show a success. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. And also to everybody who has got in contact with us to tell us about how listening to the show has helped them join their union, get more involved in their union, talk to other people about their union. You know, it's such an important part of our beliefs and what we think is important in Australia is to have strong unions and for workers to be unionised. And you can join your union right now, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. And Van, just the stories that our listeners tell us have been so inspirational, haven't they? Yeah, it's just fantastic to hear. I mean, we are union people and we make absolutely no bones about that. When I became a commentator um, and started writing for The Guardian, I made a promise with myself that I would just be honest about who I am and where I come from and what's important to me and then people know where I'm coming from and can make up their own minds about, you know, the opinions I express on things. And the proudest part of my political identity is that I'm part of the trade union movement and that that sense of belonging gives such meaning to my life and I know, Ben, it gives meaning to your life and to the lives of all of our comrades. Like we're part of something. And rather than feeling powerless about the world's injustices and sitting back going everything's a disaster, climate change is a disaster, you know, the economy is a disaster, sex is 
racism is a disaster, everything else, we know we are part of an organised, institutionalised movement with the resources and the commitment to fight for justice and equality. And every day is more bearable because we know that our union membership is part of a campaign for better. Absolutely. And we've covered some big wins that unions have had over the course of 2021. Um, I'm sure if you go to Australian unions uh, on their Facebook page, on their Twitter, towards the end of the year, you'll see more wins. Any union page, really, you'll see wins where they're winning back a wage underpayments, where they're getting paid domestic violence leave in the workplace, where they're making things safer and jobs more secure. Uh, and I do want to very quickly give a shout out to the workers at CSR Giprock, whose members are currently on strike and look like they may be on strike over Christmas. Their employer is cancelling their collective agreement. Do check out their megaphone petition. I'll post links on our social media. Uh, it's Sorry, not a, not a petition. It's a fundraiser. These are workers... These are workers who are probably not going to be able to afford Christmas because of their employer, and that is absolutely outrageous. What gross Grinches CSR, Jiprock are, and we're having none of it. So, guys, if you are spending this Christmas, can you please consider a donation to that strike fund because things are going to be really tough for those workers. Everybody's had a really difficult past couple of years and the point is when people, everyone hates going on strike, nobody wants to go on strike, it is always a last resort. It is only when a situation is desperate and an employer is being recalcitrant um, that strike actions are pursued by working people. And the thing is that a strike anywhere that has a positive outcome is a positive outcome for all workers. So please, um, making a donation to that strike fund means that that group of people, that community um, will have the energy and the resources to have Christmas, to fight for better and when they win, and I genuinely believe they will win, that will have a positive impact for the rest of the community. So essentially helping out their strike fund is a present to all working people. That's right. Absolutely. And every little bit helps. So on that note, we need to talk about Omicron. and Omicron! I know, I know. Every time it's, you say it, I know you're thinking of the Transformers movie. I am, I really do. I think Orson Welles, is, when I hear Omicron, I think Orson Welles and I think robotic planets eating other robotic planets. That's my childhood summed up right there. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, one ben day is still I trying to get over his uh, complex robotic planets eating other planets trauma, which was definitive for him as a small child. One day I shall tell the world my, my struggle to find a – DVD copy of the Transformers animated movie uh, when I was in my 20s. I did find one eventually. Thank you very much to the very good people at, uh, I think it was japaneseimports.com.au who managed to provide that. Not sure that was actually what it was called, but it, uh, anyway, it's a really interesting and fun movie. I enjoyed it a lot. The point that I'm trying to make, though, Van, <laughs> is that this is no laughing matter. Omicron is a serious, serious variant of COVID-19. And while in Australia we seem to be kind of 
talking about opening up and going, ah, oh, you know, well, we're going to have a few thousand cases. Oh, New South Wales is abandoning mandates, which is very interesting because the number of cases in New South Wales is shooting up through the roof. 1,360 cases today, which is up from uh, just a little bit over 800 yesterday. That's a huge amount of growth. Huge amount of growth. Oh, thank God we're all taking our masks off and letting unvaccinated people uh, into public areas and closed areas and areas with no ventilation. No problem at all. Do you know what maybe we should do? We should maybe send like unvaccinated people into, I don't know, the homes of immunocompromised people and just get rid of any kind of banning whatsoever. My God, what reckless, reckless endangerment of a population that's already done the hard yards with this disease. Now we know that there is an even more virulent variant that's a very difficult thing to say, but an even more difficult concept to broach. Do you want to maybe tell the people of New South Wales specifically about what's going on in Britain and why abandoning mandates might be, oh, I don't know, just completely disastrous, Ben? Absolutely. You know, I've said this before on the show and we've talked about it a lot. The Northern Hemisphere is really our uh, canary in the coal mine. They are our early warning system about COVID and we have unfortunately had Liberal governments, both federally and in New South Wales, ignore the lessons from the Northern Hemisphere. And over time, the, the window for us to learn the lesson has shrunk down from six months Uh, maybe even more, to what is now weeks. And in the UK, they had 54,000 cases on Saturday. Of Omicron. Of of COVID-19. And Omicron is the the predominant um, strain now. The number of infected is doubling every 2.4 days. So that's, what what is that, roughly every uh, 60 hours or so. The UK, which has, you know, had its opened up, had its Freedom Day, you know, when people were saying it's a bit early to have it, they had it anyway, they got rid of masks, they got rid of working from home. Well, they've just passed a law, uh, and Boris Johnson only got this law through with the support of the Labor Party because 99 of his own MPs voted against it. But they've just put in place compulsory COVID vaccination for National Health Service workers. They've just made it compulsory for people over 18 to prove they're vaccinated to enter venues. They've put in place daily testing for people who have close contacts uh, and compulsory face masks in shops and stores and also brought brought back, I should say, working from home right across the UK. There's some slight variations depending on where you are. Now, they've done this. Because, you know, we should remember the UK has already had 146,000 people die. Die. Like not sick, everybody, die. Actually die from coronavirus. And now with Omicron, the most optimistic scenario is projecting. So they do, you know, different scenarios and, and different projections. In their most optimistic scenario, the British government, this is the British government, conservative government of Boris Johnson, is projecting that between now and the 30th of April in England, there will be 20.9 million infections of COVID-19, 175,000 hospital admissions, and another 24,700 deaths. 
That's, That's their the most, most optimistic scenario. That's is right. that 24,000 people are going to die. Nearly 25,000. You know, it's interesting because I lived in Britain for 10 years, as you know, and consider it my second home. And at no point in my experience in Britain did I ever really think of 25,000 dead people in my community as optimistic. So well done to Boris Johnson for bringing back that, you know, plague-era disaster-level misery um, that Britain has been missing out on for so long. Um, I don't know if perhaps our um, listeners don't follow the British news as closely as I am want to do so. There's a big scandal uh, with the Johnson government at the moment that at the height of of the lockdowns in in Britain when um, the Mm. Tory government was saying, yes, you know, lockdown, stay at home, restriction on on movement. This is obviously before um, Freedom Day. Uh, Around Christmas last year, the Tories had a party at number 10 Downing Downing Street and broke Um. all of their own rules around coronavirus. And, of course, part of the problem they have in Britain is that people aren't complying with the rules and why would they when the leadership don't comply with the rules. There's a particularly good column about it from uh, my colleague Marina Hyde in the Guardian this week, just going, "What is this? Like, what is Johnson doing?" And well, uh, it's a really terrible situation in the well, UK. Man, I think I think it's I think it's a good time to think about the most pessimistic scenario because, as you say, Johnson's not really well known for following his own rules. The or indeed anybody's. <laughs> any rules at all. Or for knowing how many children he has, which is still an open question. So, you know, we might be a bit overly optimistic to think that the most optimistic scenario is the one that England will end up with. In the most pessimistic scenario, keep in mind there's quite a big space between most optimistic and most pessimistic, there will be 34.2 million infections, 492,000 hospital admissions and 74,900, let's round it, 75,000 people will die between now and the 30th of April. That's just in the UK. What you were saying about how... Um, Europe is like the canary in the coal mine for us, like it shows us a terrible vision of the future. Um, I have no faith in Dominic Perrottet in New South Wales, given the fact that New South Wales is reopening despite the fact that Omicron is flying through the community and the fact that, you know, boosters are being rolled out but, like, not everybody has their booster yet. Like we don't know the effects of Omicron and how successful it's going to be against like the boosters are going to be against it. You and I are both triple vaxxed. We certainly urge everybody everyone, to take everyone. every yep. precaution available to you, get vaccinated, get double vaccinated, get triple vaccinated, do whatever you can. But this sort of laissez-faire, yeah, like no problem, let her rip, like that is the attitude that kills people, which is actually what's going on in the UK. And I just, you know, I have skin in this game, obviously, because I lived there for 10 years. I've told this program yeah. before that someone I knew died of coronavirus. Well, another friend called me this week Um with uh, tidings of the holiday season to tell me that she has now had coronavirus four times. Oh, Four times. And, of course, we have people running around with, and I quote, medical exemptions in the state of New South Wales who are working despite vaccine mandates because they've had coronavirus before. And it's like if you've had coronavirus before, you can still get coronavirus again. And it is not a replacement for being vaccinated. No, and let's talk a little bit about that. So 
you know, while New South Wales has gone full open up to all the unvaccinated, Victoria today announced it will not be removing the mask mandates in retail and hospitality. Like in the mask mandates that were due to come off tomorrow are not coming off now because of Omicron, which I think is sensible. And and the whole oh well I've had it before, I can't possibly get it again is not based on any reality. The science, and again, you can get all this on the BBC, uh, the science is really clear. You need three shots. Uh, Omicron doesn't, is not prevented from two shots. It's not prevented from one shot and having had it, having had uh, Delta or another variant before. And that's, when you think about it, there's a logic to that, right? Because Actually, now we've got two years of evolution of COVID-19 and the same vaccine that was rolled out two years ago is not going to have all of the various spike elements, as they're called, uh, that Omicron has. So what the scientists are saying, and for the love of God, if you're listening to this show, I'm guessing you're a follower of science Notice I didn't say believer, but a follower of science. Uh, What the scientists are saying is two shots and previous exposure should be enough, but ideally two shots and the booster will be enough to keep Omicron at bay. So until you've got that, you really do need to take every possible precaution uh, including physical distancing, wearing masks, washing hands, all the things we now know how to do uh, and have been doing for two years. Because the models out of New South Wales van are pretty disturbing. You know, Brad Hazard, uh, you know, politically, I think, went out on a limb today uh, and told the people of Australia that New South Wales could have 25,000 cases a day by January. By January. Great. Awesome. How fantastic. I mean, here we are, all of us, exhausted from two years of this. Those of us who've been lucky enough to not get coronavirus or to get it and survive are done. We are so done. We are so tired. The answer to being tired of the constant deprivations of coronavirus, the four and a half months you and I spent apart, all the funerals that we haven't been able to go to, the wedding you and I had to cancel. I mean, this is just us. I mean, we know that other people, you know, like people close to us who were separated from their partners for even longer, like all of the problems with Australians getting stranded, the stranded Aussies overseas, the rest of it, right? If you are exhausted after two years of this, the solution is to maintain restrictions, so we can fight the virus. It is not to go, oh, well, we just spent those two years keeping ourselves safe. Now let's get 25,000 cases a day. That's not the solution. I do not know what is going on in the head of the Premier of New South Wales. I genuinely do not know. I sort of understand as the kind of awkward work experience kid who became Premier because no one else wanted to do it because Gladys was up on corruption charges. Like I sort of understand how he could completely stuff this up like that's the context yeah. but why you would do that when you are surrounded by scientists who are like yeah this could be really bad is be- is beyond me i just don't get the political calculation all i want 
all I want now that I have been confronted like the rest of us by the reality of coronavirus and what it does to people. Now I have friends in the ground or unable to work because of coronavirus, the damage it's done to them. Another friend of mine has had now had long COVID for over a year and she thinks she's probably going to have it for the rest of her life. You know, like I can't. I just want to keep my family and my friends and my community safe and I do not understand why there are people determined to endanger that safety after everything everyone has gone through. I don't understand why they're being so reckless. I do not understand the, like, basically pro-virus columns in the AFR. I do not understand a let-it-rip strategy in New South Wales. I do not understand a prime minister of this country going, oh, well, you know, like... People, people just want to get back to normal life. Life is not normal. The virus is here. I don't, I don't understand abrogating responsibility for everything, all the time and effort and energy and and emotions that we have sunk into fighting this thing. I don't, I don't understand why we'd let it rip now. I just don't I, get it. I think it's a, I think it's a calculus of political cowardice on the part of Dominic Perrottet and Scott Morrison. I think it's the calculus of a federal election in the first half of 2022 and that people are tired. People are tired. People are sick of restrictions. I call them protections, but, you know, that ship has sailed. We've lost the language, the battle of language on that some time ago. People don't want to be separated physically from each other. They don't want to keep wearing masks. They don't want to have to check in. I don't want to go into a shop where there are unvaccinated people. And I totally agree with you. And I think, as I say, it's a calculus of political cowardice to suggest that what what Scott Morrison and Dominic Perrottet are doing is banking that fewer people will be negatively impacted, then there will be people who are relieved to have those protections removed. And I think it's wrong. I think that it's a gamble they're taking with the lives of other people, of our most vulnerable people in particular, uh, and more broadly with the Australian population. You can't tell me that when we're getting to the stage of 150,000 cases in a week just in New South Wales, that there will not be large numbers of people dying. Simply, there's not enough doctors, there's not enough nurses, there's not enough hospital beds in the event that those kind of numbers become real. Now, we all hope they don't, right? And we all hope people are sensible and logical and rational and do the safe thing. But we know, we've had years of it now, we know that it's hard and people don't like to do things that are hard. I don't like to do things that are hard. But people also respect leadership. And this they is do. this is why I talked about the Boris Johnson thing. One of the reasons it's fallen apart in England is if the Prime Minister is like, woohoo, let's have a party at number 10, like, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And that's the message people take. I mean, you only have to compare what lockdowns have been like in Victoria and the high level of of 
of respect for lockdowns because it was taken incredibly seriously and the seriousness of the situation we were in was underlined by the political leadership in the state every single day. Like all of those ordinary people who'd been affected by coronavirus, I remember there was a girl, I think she was like 11, who had caught it, who had been close to death, who was hospitalised and she and her mother spoke at a press conference and, my God, like there was absolutely no doubt what we were facing while that was going on and the example that was set of seriousness and pretending that it will all go away. You know, it enrages me. And when we're talking about, you know, things we've learnt this year, we've gone through this in this country with climate change. When Tony Abbott was Prime Minister, Tony Abbott essentially made the 2013 election, if you vote for me, climate change will go away. We won't have a carbon price because I will just, like, publicly deny that climate change is even a thing. So if you elect me, that will stop making it a thing. And this seems to, if you're talking about, like, the cynical calculus, like calculations yeah. of cowardly electoral politics, like is you vote for me and coronavirus will just mass, will just disappear. We'll just pretend it's not happening. We know that the right are running this in the US, like people like Ron DeSantis in, in Florida who are like vote for me and we'll just pretend it's not happening. The problem is that like reality exists. This is a zero-sum game. Like coronavirus does not care who the Premier is or the Prime Minister is, it just infects people and mutates and infects more people until such a regime exists to minimise its spread um, and and to wipe it out. But, like, oh, my God, like, it just... It's, it's, a, really, it's a really interesting ideological <laughs> question in my mind now uh, where you have the same sorts of people who refer to the economy like a, a mystical spirit rather than just the millions of individual transactions and interactions that people, whether they're real people or corporations that have the legal uh, standing of people, do every single day uh, as though you can't control any of it, as though policy can't frame any of it. Um, you know, it's, it's something that can't be changed. You can't ignore it. You can't do anything about it. It just is. That group of people seemingly takes the total inverse position when it comes to things like, as you say, climate change but also COVID, that you can just ignore it and it will go away, that this is a choice to believe in this or not. And it's like these are not... These are not things that you get to believe in or not believe in. These are tangible realities. Economies are tangible interactions that people make. Um, COVID is a is a viral disease. Climate change is a measurable phenomenon that that can be impacted one way or another depending on actions people take. Like simply throwing your hands up and hoping that the invisible spirits will take care of it is a is a pretty medieval form of politics. And look, you can kind of see the appeal, right? Like if you're tired and exhausted and it's hard to know, you know, what to do next and what's going to happen next, this idea of, well, none of it really matters. What I do is not really going to have an impact one way or another has an appeal. The problem is that when you multiply that across, say, 400 million people in the US or even 26 million people in Australia, that has a huge impact, a huge, massive impact. 
uh, and even just multiplying it across the, what is it, six or seven million people in New South Wales will have a massive impact. So, you know, and, in, and this is why we have government, right? Because micro decisions add up to macro decisions. And unless you create a framework for those decisions to be, have a net positive outcome, then at an individual level, I'm not going to think about what the what the macro, what the big picture issue is, because it's like, well, you know, I didn't get COVID, therefore, me not wearing a mask, me not being vaccinated, doesn't mean doesn't make any difference. Yeah, tell like, that to the grieving families. Tell that to the people with lifelong heart damage or lung damage or just like perpetually exhausted. You know, I just it's unforgivable. Um, I also I wanted to make the point. Um, as people know, with the research that I did into QAnon and conspiracy cults online, I've been undercover um, online, sort of monitoring these people. And when we talk about the the the, the politics of cynical cowardice uh, that's going on, obviously in the communities that I observe, um, they are all they're all being guided towards being Palmer voters because Palmer's party and Craig Kelly, who's running with Palmer's party, has you know they're pushing this anti-vax stuff, um, and you know an end to restrictions and you know the rest of it, and the the fake accounts that I have to monitor all that stuff get Liberal Party advertising every half an hour. Yeah. So even though theoretically they're a Palmer movement and they're aligned with that particular electoral project, um, there is absolutely like the most cynical calculation being made possible that in that community they're just getting pro-Liberal Party saturation advertising from people like Rennick from Queensland um, who was the one who challenged Katie Gallagher. So Labor's Katie Gallagher um pulled him up on spreading uh, vaccine misinformation, I'll say politely, uh, on social media. And she, like, this is a woman whose daughter had coronavirus and she talked about the experience of watching your child struggle to breathe um, in order to... um, really take him to task my my fake accounts get ads from Rennick all the time and you know we know that those decisions around political advertising they're not made randomly they're part of a a broader strategic calculation and it is absolutely disgusting to see just you know the 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 willingness of the Liberal Party to engage that space you know there used to be a time where the centre-left and centre-right the 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 policies of the mass parties in this country and in America and in the UK used to be on a fundamental appreciation of reality. Like we would debate the ideology, you know, should we go this way or should we go that way? But reality was a consensus position. And the fact that major centre-right groupings, you know, Boris Johnson's Tories, the Republicans in the United States, and I'm sad to say it, it looks like the Liberals here, are willing to participate in this, we will fuel your willful, deceitful fantasy um, out of cynical front party vote harvesting um, intentions. It just makes me sick. It actually makes me sick. Well, I think that's a good segue into what we learned from 2021 because I think in 2021 we've really seen that come through, haven't we? It's been – it was – apparent after the 2019 election that there was some form of 
collusion, cooperation, uh, whether it was just based on, you know, reading each other's media releases and adjusting accordingly, or whether it was something more between the Morrison Liberals and the Palmerites. We've, we've gone from they seem to be on the same page to very much there are elements of the Morrison Liberal Party who vote, who vote against shared positions of the centre parties, by which I mean Labor and Liberal. They, they cross the floor to vote with Craig Kelly, uh, but not to support uh, Independent Corruption Commission, but to, you know, praise hydroxychloroquine or, you know, all these sorts of lunatic things. It's become very, very clear that Morrison is not prepared to stamp that out. He has nothing to say about that. He doesn't take those people to task. But when his MPs do try and support things like an integrity commission, they get they get ambushed and, and dragged in before him. We've really learned that Morrison is misleading this country uh, on so many levels. Oh, it's just it's shocking. So there's an amazing report in the Age um, slash Fairfax slash Nine papers uh, this week about how the Liberals have just totally pork-barrelled grant allocations. And it's just, it's absolutely horrendous, the exploitation of taxpayers that's gone on in terms of just funding vanity projects in Liberal seats. And that's what's been happening, um, like, over the course of the Morrison government. And this investigation by the nine Fairfax journalists is extraordinary. It amounts to literal billions of dollars um, outspent in um, Liberal seats by just these shocking, shocking proportions. So one of the examples given was that the seat of Lindsay, which is a Liberal-held marginal, received $35 million from the federal government and the seat of McMahon, which is Labor's Chris Bowen's seat, which is next door, safe Labor seat, got $635,000. It's next door. The demographics of the seats are almost identical. And I'm like... What did this pay for? Like we've seen what the Liberals spend money on, gun clubs. That was one of Bridget McKenzie's pet projects, was it not? You know, like there was, there's been unbelievable pork barrelling going on in the seat of Wentworth. The seat of Wentworth has the highest concentration of wealth of any seat in the country. There are more millionaires who live in the seat of Wentworth, Sydney's eastern suburbs, than anywhere else. Um, and Liberal grants have paid for things like, televisions uh, so people can watch international sporting matches in various places, like things that nobody in Wentworth is suffering to provide for themselves. That certainly the spending capacity of people in Wentworth um, could be directed towards like, you know, providing those amenities through, God help us, voluntary contributions. We all know that rich people are very good at tax minimisation and working class people tend not to be. Working class people tend to pay their tax. And the absolute milking of ordinary Australians to pay for frippery in some of the richest seats in this country because they're Liberal seats is also sickening and good on Fairfax 9 for blowing that open. And I think I think that's really 
how this needs to be discussed, right? Because there's too often an easy way out here. And Morrison, I saw Morrison today was asked how to how he could explain, um, you know, twenty eight million dollars spent in Dixon in Peter Dutton's seat um, versus the couple of forty million. 40 million, 40 million, 40 million in his seat, yep. Versus a couple of hundred thousand spent in Lilly, which is a Labor seat right next door. Again, same demographics, all the rest of it. Uh, and he and he just said, oh, Dixon, member for Dixon must be very good, must be a very good representative, the member for Dixon. Like, the, And then named some other Liberals he was standing with. Now, that's obviously a kind of response to this idea that it's pork-barrelling, right, that it's a part of the political game. But your point, Van, I think is a much better one, and that it's not that it's pork-barrelling, it's that it's actually taking money from working people and giving it to the wealthy. It's taking money from working people and giving it to people who don't need it. It's not based on Televisions. Public televisions in Wentworth. It's not so based they can on watch need. Sport games. Not based on need. Not based on capacity. Not based on lifting the living standards of the people in those seats, or improving the economic conditions for all of us. Or creating jobs. Or creating because jobs. Because this is the thing. Like when we like buy useless garbage for rich people with taxpayer. Like. What could we be doing with the money that they've been spending on vanity projects? Ooh, oh, ooh, we I've could. Got you've got one. What have you got, Ben? Which so one have you there, got? There was a story today. There was a story today in the Australian. Uh, our, our good comrades at the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union have pointed out that the government chose cheap, uh, made in China wind blades for for the nation's largest wind farm which have already broken uh and uh, and have to be replaced maybe instead of wasting money on giving multi-millionaires and billionaires public televisions we could have directed that money towards having australian made wind turbine blades that created jobs here in australia and paid decent wages to workers here in australia oh well, I mean, this is the thing. If only there was some kind of massive, uh, you know, paradigm shift going on with, you know, production, distribution and exchange in the world that maybe had to do with something like, oh, I don't know, the climate. And, you know, if only we had government resources to do something about that. Oh, we do. I've got some figures. Do we want to have some figures specifically on this Wentworth television thing? Like sure. I lived in Wentworth, so I know that seat extremely well. I lived in, in King's Cross in the last five minutes where it was still affordable and obviously I haven't lived there in some time. But, you like, if you haven't been to Vaucluse, if you've never been to Vaucluse or around Rushcutters Bay or Neutral Bay, can I just recommend as an Australian, next time you're in Sydney, if you're ever there, go for a bit of a walk. Go for a bit of a walk around Bellevue Hill, you know, and the suburbs that are covered by the seat of Wentworth. And you tell me that this was a seat that needed $33.5 million in grants. They spent $16,500 for the Eastern Suburbs District Rugby Union Club so patrons could watch live international sports games and tournaments. Well, how absolutely fabulous for them and their $33.5 million pork barrel. The Labor seat of Kingsford Smith, which is now Next door, literally next door to Wentworth, got four point one million dollars. The best one um, is the the um, 
the funding on the Liberal seat of, of Reid. Um, and I'd just like here to speak Sally Situ, who's a friend of ours, who's an awesome person from the community, who's the Labor candidate in Reid, an absolutely naked endorsement from me if you are in the seat of Reid. Don't only vote for her, um, donate to her campaign, donate your time, be a volunteer, get them out. So in the Liberal-held seat of Reid, a marginal, they spent $14.8 million, including giving money to a Presbyterian school to create a breeding pond for native turtles so a private school run by a church got money for a breeding ground for native turtles i mean we value the native turtles don't get us wrong but we do think that when there are two million australians unemployed or underemployed when there are there are two hundred thousand australians who are kept out of the workforce because they can't find appropriate caring support for their children, loved one with a disability or their elderly parents, there may be the priority needs to be in addressing those issues where they're prevalent. Rather or than- creating a systemic solution. I agree we should have more native turtles. I think native yeah. turtles, are, as anybody who listens to this program knows, I am pro-turtle up yeah, to yeah. my eyeballs. But what about here, like I know this is crazy, what about resourcing a job-creating uh, natural habitat regeneration program that it could directly employ people in the process of, um, you know, amphibian rehabilitation and, you know, restock efforts rather I, than giving money to a private school to do it. Well, and, I but I want to make this point about Reed. okay? So Reed got $14.8 million, the marginal yeah. seat of Reed. Graindler, which is next door, which is Anthony Albanese's seat, which is, of course, um, you know, uh, like demographically very, very close to the seat of Reed, got a total of $718,000 in grants. So what they worked out in this study um, of the grants and did, they spent two months analysing the data. The government wouldn't help them. The government told them, oh, it was, oh the data was unavailable. It was too hard. No, yeah. the journalists found it. That there had been, a, like, Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese, the two most recent leaders of the Labor Party, their seats received some of the lowest uh, grant allocations in the whole country, like less than a million dollars for those two seats each, um, whereas Wentworth, Wentworth, richest seat in the country, $33.5 million of pork barrelling. And I think it's I think it's really important <laughs> that we talk about this too in this broader context of what we've learned in 2021, right? Because this goes to the heart of the corruption at the centre of the Morrison government. You know, we've seen ministers who get caught out. So Bridget McKenzie caught out with the sports rorts, out of cabinet for less than a year. Angus Taylor, still in cabinet, despite allegations linking him to a gas company that got a grant. And a coal mine. Wasn't there a coal mine as well? a coal mine as well that got a grant. Uh, Links illegal land poisoning. That's Um, the grasslands. I get all the Angus Taylor scandals mixed up. Yeah, and a botched political hit job on Clover Moore, who just got re-elected, by the way, as mayor of Sydney. Wait a second. Wasn't there also something to do with water? There was water. There was the. There was some water rights issues as well. Water rights issues that he made vast amounts of money on. We've seen we've seen Alan Tudge, you know, get promoted by Morrison after it became public that he had an affair with his staff member. 
and only it was only some twelve to eighteen months later, where when she publicly accused him of physical violence, that he was made to sort of stand aside as minister. He hasn't Not resigned. resigned. He didn't resign. He no. stood aside. Stood aside. You know, this is this is a government embroiled in scandal after scandal. We've seen Christian Porter. He's finally giving up his political uh, aspirations. You know, he he was supposed to deliver a National Integrity Commission. Christian Porter, National Integrity Commission. He was the Attorney General. He was supposed to deliver it. He didn't. He got sidetracked by his own scandalous uh, interactions with the public. You know, Tim Wilson, who... Timmy. Who, frankly has been the architect of much of the liberal lie campaigns of 2019, was promoted to be a junior minister and serves under none other than Angus Taylor, who himself has been <laughs> called out for lie after lie. You know, this is, a, this is a Morrison government that is prepared to lie, supports liars, you know, supports itself sees our money as its money, their money, that they can give to themselves, give to their mates, prop up their own ambitions, and they do it again and again and again. And, you know, all of the usual sort of caveats around politics, oh, all politicians are liars and all politicians make promises they can't keep and things intervene that mean they can't keep promises and all the rest of it. Let me be really clear about this because you know this as well as I do, Van. If a government wants to do something, the government can get it done. When the Morrison government wanted to give $90 billion to corporate Australia, it got it done. It called it JobKeeper and it handed out the money, right? When it wanted to make sure that women didn't stop going to work because of the pandemic, all the arguments that we couldn't have free childcare disappeared. Yep. disappeared when there was concern that homeless people would get COVID and might cough on a passerby and spread COVID, suddenly we were able to fix homelessness almost overnight. Politics is often described as the art of the possible. What Morrison tries to do is frame it up as the art of the impossible. And by that I mean it's impossible to do anything for the people unless there's something in it for him. And all of this pork barrelling, let's call it what it is, corruption, let's call it what it is, bribery, gifts for mates, gifts for friends, gifts for backers, that's what it is, is just a symptom of a government that believes in nothing except itself and its own tenuous grip on power. That's yeah. what I've learned. Yeah, that's absolutely point. true. Absolutely. All, they, all they're interested in is staying in power and not for any particular reason. There's no nation building going on. There are no grand projects. There's, you know, no legacy of, you know, achievement, even in what I would consider the wrong direction. It's literally just, it's, do you know what it reminds me of? And, of course, I have no lived experience of this. This is just vicarious observation through various cultural products and social experiences. Mm. They're like a bunch of private school prefects who want to make sure they retain exclusive 
access to the senior clubhouse room. I don't know. I didn't go to private school. I don't know what well, they have. Let's, do, let, let, let's be clear too, right? So they're, they're, the thing, as you say, it's not even in the wrong direction, right? Because he hasn't got his religious discrimination laws through. Senior common room. That's what they're called in books. Right. Yeah. But he there we hasn't go. got his religious discrimination laws done. He hasn't removed the threshold that prevents low-income earners from getting paid super, which his backers in retail superannuation wanted just as much as the industry superannuation uh, advocates wanted. He hasn't done any of those things because he hasn't prioritised them because he's he hasn't he just hasn't bothered. He hasn't fixed any of the issues around respecting work, around respecting women in the workplace. No. No, respect no. it. The, how many recommendations from the respected work report? $11 billion. Did he adopt them? No. There was 55 and he hasn't. He hasn't addressed the issues in the Aged Care Royal Commission. It seems unlikely that if he's re-elected that he would address the issues and recommendations from the uh, Disability Royal Commission. This is a guy who comes out and goes, we're going to adopt all of the recommendations and then refuses to adopt staff ratios or proper care uh, care plans and care treatment. You know, we're, we're coming into the end of 2021 and I just, I just keep coming back to wages are lower, profits are higher, childcare costs more. Yeah, not profits for small businesses, more. profits oh, yeah. for massive international conglomerates. Corporations, yeah, yeah. Corporate profits are higher. Uh, petrol costs more. Jobs are more insecure than they've ever been. And owning or even renting a home is less affordable than it's ever been. Like it just, the man is a failure and he's a fraud and he leads a government full of lies and shysters and he needs to be kicked out. Oh, it's just, it's shocking. It's just absolutely shocking. And I keep getting back to this point. The Liberals I know, I know when they vote Liberal, they're voting for people who are like Julia Banks or Christopher Pine or Malcolm Turnbull, you know, sensible, socially progressive, fiscally conservative types. Like overwhelmingly that's the base of the Liberal vote. And like the party doesn't, the Liberal Party doesn't represent them at all anymore. That's no. not, not the brand on offer. Like I said, it's just the the boys protecting their exclusive access to the senior common room. That's all they are. Well, even even on emissions, you know, you finally think you've got them somewhere where they're hap- where they're prepared to acknowledge climate change as an issue, and you think, oh, emissions dropped. Well, of course, because of COVID, emissions dropped. But the reality of that is that ABC Fact Checker has checked the claims that emissions have dropped from 2012 levels and that they're the lowest they've ever been, and they've found them to be misleading and incorrect. Misleading and incorrect. And I think if there was ever just two, if I had to sum up the Morrison government in two words, it would be misleading and incorrect. So, Van, will 2022 be any better? Will 2022 be any better? We should. Look, I just want to say this to everybody, you know, like what are you, what are you doing personally to get Morrison out of government? Like what are the decisions you're making on a day-to-day basis to get Morrison out of government? Like this is a question I ask myself. This isn't a, hey, you know. It's like I want him out. He's got to go. His government have got to go. And that means... 
you know, the only alternative government, which is the Labor Party, need to win a majority of seats. And that means a contest in the marginals. And for that to happen, those campaigns need resources. They need money if you've got it and they need people if you don't have money and you can volunteer. And that's what it's going to take. That's actually what it's going to take is people on the ground handing out the pamphlets, putting up the posters, knocking the doors, wearing their Hawaiian shirts tomorrow going. Jumping online. These are the people who abandoned us when we needed them. These are people who were more interested in their fancy schmancy resort holidays than they were the Australians who put their trust in the leadership to look after them in a crisis. These are people with a let it rip, let it burn, pork barreling mentality and it's hurting this country. It's hurting all of us, absolutely all of us. And so I get up in the morning and I think what can I do? So, you know, I get online and I share the news and I share the message and I'll wear my Hawaiian shirt tomorrow and I'll remind people of their abandonment and their abscondment of us. And I will, and you know, in my capacity, if I can give money, I will give money. If I can put up posters or, you know, create slogans or jokes or anything I can do, I will do it to get them out of power because enough is enough. Here, here. So... You know, and one of those things that uh, that we are doing is obviously uh, people might have seen regular listeners to the show will be familiar with Nordacious and Nordacious's merch of the sit down buffhead uh, moment where Anthony Albanese told Peter Dutton in Parliament to quote unquote sit down buffhead. Uh, and has turned that into a T-shirt and coffee cups and all sorts of things, I think. Uh, and, you know, that's just getting the message out there. We don't – We I should say this is not a paid ad. We're not getting uh, any uh, – I think I think he's sending us a T-shirt each. <laughs> so uh, we look forward to that. I look forward to wearing it. We'll take photos when we get them. Uh, but there's, this is not a paid endorsement. This is just – we like that stuff. We like things that engage people. Uh, we'd encourage others to do the same. Uh, we've obviously uh, promoted other, uh, you know, interesting and engaging, funny, witty, informative things. Um, obviously, we talk about joining your union. We, we talk about that every week in every show because that's another way to get information and resources to and talk to, to your workmates. And to build up the institutions that can also participate in campaigning on your behalf. No, like if you if you are the kind of person, I know a lot of people listen to this show because they want to be more engaged with politics, they want to be more engaged with the news, but they're working like two-plus jobs and they listen to us on their commute and and are time poor. Like we get that. We really, really get that. And that's why being a member of a union is important because that's an institution that exists to do the campaigning on your behalf. And with you. You know, and to give you, you the opportunities to campaign in ways that will work with you and your other other requirements, whether they be work or caring. You know, in the ten years uh, of my in, most active involvement in the union movement, the cultural shift around uh, having women leaders, Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill as leaders of the trade union movement, have led a cultural revolution uh, and the needs of women in the workplace, carers, whether they be men or women, have never been more at the front of mind around how unions engage uh, workers and in campaigns. And it's just so positive. Like it's such a, 
you know, there's some hope there. Like we often talk about the negative stuff. We've had to do that again today, obviously. But I think there is hope for 2022, Van. You know, there's an election in South Australia in March. That's looking neck and neck. We've seen lots of uh, union activity and campaigning there around public holidays for Christmas Day, around um, uh, early childhood education, uh, school funding, transportation. Uh, we're seeing lots lots of activity, obviously, now in the lead up to the federal election, which will be March or May. That will be tough. Like, the, people shouldn't, you know, just see the polls there and think, oh, Labor's got this in the bag. You know, the, the numbers are not uniform. Labor has a lot of very marginal seats, by which I mean under 2% margin. The Liberals have, you know, seats, their most marginal seats sort of start at 4 or 5%. Labor needs to win 10 to 12 seats and not lose seats. That's a hard ask, even with good nationwide polls. And that's why people have to get involved. And, of course, at the end of 2022, we'll see a Victorian election. And at the moment... I mean, we're a year out from that, nearly a year out from that. Uh, Labor is on track to win quite comfortably. But as we've seen, things change very rapidly in politics and nobody can afford to see Liberal governments come into power uh, in Victoria or hold power in South Australia or nationally uh, and keep putting ordinary working people at risk whether that's at risk with their health, whether that's at risk with our job security, whether that's at risk of our living standards, because that's what they do. Oh, they absolutely do. But I just want to be really clear with people. There is only one alternative government in this country, and it's the Labor Party. And to get Morrison out, the Labor Party have got to win a majority of seats. And I know a lot of people get caught up in the idealism, oh, we'll get independence or, you know, Greens or whatever. All right, they're not a government. They can't form government. And if, like, enormous amounts of resources go into independent and green campaigns, disproportional amounts of resources do based on the effect that the independents or minor parties can have. The resources that are needed to win to to actually take government on Morrison are literally better spent in the marginal campaigns where Labor candidates have a chance of knocking out the Liberals. That's how the maths works, right? It, that I I you know would love a political future where everybody got a free unicorn and we could all have whatever we want and live in twenty five million different countries of our own choosing. That's not reality. The reality is that it comes down to which of the two major parties wins the majority of seats. And to get the Liberals out requires getting the Labor Party in. So if you are thinking of working on a campaign, volunteering the rest of it, kicking out a a Liberal and replacing them with an independent, who by the way is probably a Tory, is not going to get the transformative change. And spending, you know, the kind of money that's required to make that happen is money that will not be going to campaigns like Sally Situs in the seat of Reid who needs and can make something of every single dollar she gets to get the Liberal she is contesting out. Absolutely. And, you know, I also want to point this out. It is when Labor wins government, it will be a large number of new women coming into parliament. That's that's a mathematical reality. 
you know, and I and I get the discussion around the a lot of the independence of women, and it's good to see women running. It absolutely is, it absolutely is, and and shout out to my former colleague Mary Doyle, who's running against Alan Tudge in the seat of Aston. Now, that's a very hard, that's a very hard win for Mary to have, um, you know, really any any chance. That's a very hard get. But good on Mary for putting a hand up and having a go and going, actually, the people of Aston deserve a real choice. And we need to see that. And we need to support candidates in those seats that are winnable where Labor will form government because it will be women who sweep Labor into power and it will be women who are joining the ranks of government. I think that's... That's an amazing, an amazing opportunity for our country to really have that transformational change. Yeah, and, like, government means the people who actually sit on the money and the resources and the laws and the legislative process, not just women going into parliament and arguing with people but having ministries and, like, access to the actual mechanics of how we can build a, a better country. And, and this is the thing. If you think it's important for the experiences of women, which are different to the experiences of men, to be heeded and heralded at the highest possible level, put them into actual government. Don't just put them in the building. Give them the keys to the car. Well, it's absolutely right, isn't it? Because you can look at there are independents in parliament now, you know, and... Don't get me wrong. Some of them are good people and some of them are trying very hard. But at the end of the day, their ideas for how to deal with the pandemic did not become law. Their ideas for what to do after the pandemic have not become law. And probably the most famous piece of legislation an independent member of parliament created, the Medivac legislation, disappeared disappeared because independents don't form government and government controls the mechanisms of government. Like it sounds like a silly thing to say, but that's why we elect governments because they control the mechanisms, they set the laws, they set the policies, they determine how things are done, they determine what is done. Governments are very powerful very, very, very powerful. Just because Scott Morrison doesn't nothing doesn't doesn't do. Sorry, just because Scott Morrison does nothing doesn't mean government can do nothing. That's absolutely right. And nothing is a choice, and it's a, as powerful a choice to do nothing. Um, it, you know, as we're all trapped in this stasis, particularly around climate change, going well, are we going to do anything at any point ever? Well. If we put in a government that acknowledges climate change as a reality universally and is prepared to do something about it, well, wow, like that will be transformational and momentum begins from those transformational decisions because transformational decisions, they demystify policy issues. 
Like, remember, like there used to be a terror in this country of what would happen if women got the vote. But strangely <laughs> enough, when they did, this whole feminism thing caught on and people realised actually they were fine with women having, like, having the vote. They were fine with women having jobs. And then they were fine with women having equal pay. And slowly the momentum builds around the issues of, you know, equality and fairness and just enfranchisement. And it's the same with anything else. It's like when the legislative heft gets behind a social instinct Right, that that leads to bigger and bolder decisions that bring the people along with them. You know, fifteen years ago, I remember being in activist discussions about marriage equality, and everybody just thought it was bonkers to even think of it as a campaign. And now it's the law of the land. Ben's parents got married finally after twenty five yeah. years. It happened, and you it's know. you know it hasn't been that long since Medicare. No, you know Medicare. I am as old as Medicare. I am as old as Medicare. You are older than Medicare. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that, Ben. Thank <laughs> but, you, you know, for the we, reminder. But we need to we need to remind ourselves of these things because these are decisions that get made by governments and governments get formed because we as a people go, actually, we do want action on climate change. We do want respect for women in the workplace. We do want job security. And we want you know, jobs created in the community. We want jobs because jobs create customers. So we want all those things. So, Van, I think 2022, you know, fingers crossed on the COVID front because let's face it, that you know, the COVID front sort of is a bit the eastern front. It's the war that just never seems to end. But hopefully at least we get to a point of stabilisation and, you know, a, an honourable peace and ceasefire. It's just got to withstand the siege of Leningrad. That's all we've got to do, even if and, we have to eat the furniture. But, you know, if we can get through that, I have a lot of hope for 2022. I think, yeah, I, think I do too. There is hope. Oh, and I look, I'm angry and upset. I've had a hell of a year. Everyone has, you know. But yeah. I think it's everybody's exhaustion with this year might oblige people who often don't take holidays, and I know I am particularly guilty of this, <laughs> from resting and recharging and coming back firing next year. But we should finish with some happy news, although there will be a slight detour to me getting very angry about something I do not like on the way. Ben, you have some good news. I do have some good news. Start it with the bad bit so then we can just end on a high note. All right. So do you want to talk about... Royal Dutch Shell, or as it's better known here, Shell. Well, why why is Shell relevant, Ben? What did so, they do so, recently? So Shell is relevant to this conversation because Shell, as we've talked about before, corporations see that climate change is real and things and investors are shifting money, right? So Shell, being a corporation and being particularly good at understanding these things, has realised that investors don't particularly like how much oil and gas Shell is invested in and they want to see some clean energy alternatives. So Shell, being a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, has bought PowerShop, which is a relatively well-known renewable energy company here in Australia and I think in New Zealand and possibly some other places. I really cannot talk about how disgusting Shell are. Um, As Ben knows, I have been boycotting Shell for almost 30 years. I will not, will not 
go to a shell. Um, and this comes from my awareness. I was part of the campaign, solidarity campaigns in the 1990s um, against what Shell were doing in Nigeria. So um, oil was discovered on the lands of the Ugoni people of Nigeria in 1957. And uh, the Anglo-Dutch oil giant Shell um, had a very interesting relationship with the military in Nigeria that allowed them to uh, to um to obtain oil from this particular area, various levels of complicity have been hinted at, um, but the military essentially, re- the Nigerian military repressed Ogoni people who spoke up and organised against the effects of Shell being there. So uh, Ogoni land, uh, where this oil was, is now one of the most polluted places on earth. Um, crops have been totally destroyed there. Um, ash and tar smother the land. Uh, the wells are all polluted with oil, it's driven people from their land and and totally, totally um, destroyed it. Uh, The UN says that it will take 30 years of effort in order to clean up what Shell has done there. And the fact that protests just mysteriously were suppressed, people were murdered, Um, Shell said it wasn't their fault, you know, they were just like independently uh, people who were murdering the people who were protesting uh, what was going on there. And they've said that one of the reasons the pollution is so bad is that just all their stuff was sabotaged, which is an amazing coincidence really. Yeah. So the the old slogan used to be, are you fueling murder um, because of the, uh, you know, mysterious deaths of um, anti-Shell activists in that particular part of the world. It's not a huge Shell fan, not not a fan. No. no. It turns out that the people who were customers of PowerShop are not huge fans either, as thousands of people uh, leaving PowerShop, a company that many of them joined because of their so-called environmental credentials and kind of social uh, social feel-good factor, I guess. And But the good news story in this is not that Shell has bought a, a, a greenwashing vehicle for itself, but that cooperative power, which is a exactly what it sounds like, a power co-op, which uh, unions here in Australia have been very instrumental in. Uh, And I want to give a shout-out here to Godfrey Mose and Colin Long, uh, who who I know and who have done lots of work in the union movement in the environment space and have been instrumental in the establishment of cooperative power. Uh, 2,000 people have now joined cooperative power uh, since uh, since PowerShop was bought out by Shell. And, of course, cooperative power itself is powered by Energy Locals uh, and is a, is a green energy product uh, and is making contributions uh, based on votes of the customers. So it's a co-op and they, and they you know, take members' advice on making contributions to strike funds and support for workers. And so it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic initiative. And the good news there, I think, is that people are seeing through Shell's attempts to greenwash their own company and joining... Uh, cooperative power, which is a good community union cooperative doing the right thing in renewable energy, getting it done and getting gross, which I think is fantastic. You know, people often ask Ben and I, you know, what does the, you know, Ben, you hate capitalism, what does the world look look like without it? 
well, it looks like cooperativism. It looks like the the workers owning the companies. And you can be enterprising. You have ha- you can have entrepreneurialism, and you can provide. Oh my God, goods and services that doesn't have to be in a. Oh, I don't know planet-destroying swamp of pollution model. It can be positive and proactive and based around ethical models of production, distribution and exchange. So I thoroughly encourage everybody um, to support your local co-op or start one or get involved in one. And um, as a replacement to PowerShop, what Colin and Godfrey are doing is fantastic. Thoroughly endorse. Fantastic. Well, that is all we have time for. We have gone slightly longer than usual. Uh, it is the last episode for 2021, so I hope you have enjoyed. I mean, you enjoyed- can spread it out over the next few weeks. <laughs> That's right. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode and enjoyed listening to the 110-plus recordings we have made between the week on Wednesday and the weekend wrap and our specials. This has been an incredible year for us, Fan. Uh, over a thousand downloads a day. Uh, we four point nine out of five stars on Apple. Uh, lots of positive comments. Lots of interaction from people. Lots of great ideas for stories. We can't obviously follow up all of them. We do try and get back to everybody uh, who contacts us. If we haven't got back to you yet, I will use some of my holiday time to get back to you to make sure that you do hear from us because without the listeners, without you sharing, liking, logging on, discussing these issues with your friends, your family, your workmates, without you joining your union, without you being actively involved, none of this would be possible. And really, you know, to the nearly 250,000 people who have listened to The Week on Wednesday in 2021, I want to say, firstly, congratulations on being part of such a vibrant community. And personally, I want to thank you for your support in what's been a really tough year for a lot of people, ourselves included. Yeah, it's been a tough year, but we got through it because of our friends. So thank you, everyone. Thank you. Don't forget to like, share, comment on this episode. Uh, Have a very merry and safe Christmas. Remember to do all the right COVID protection things. It's physical distancing, not social distancing that we have to do. And we hope and we know that we'll talk with you again in 2022. Germanicus is now licking my face. He says Merry Christmas to all. He is the best. If you maintain if you watch our social media, we may give you extra Germanicus content over Christmas. <laughs> love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. I miss you so much and I'm so looking forward to you getting up here. I can't wait. Uh, me too. Right. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and the best of the new year to all of you. Bye. Bye.